Eshu Alegwana Kosi Wari Awo Umlo Uto Ni Iwo Ara Afanbo Osi O Batala Mi Ita Ni Ivo Onilio Aban Eshu Eshu is the respected elder who flaws, confronts, and uncovers fools. That one versed in mysteries uses truth to own you. He causes scatter to feed poverty. O Batala shakes rascals to have sacrifice. The owner of warnings is the one who is Eshu, Aboru, Aboye, Aboshishe, Ashe, Mia Ebo Ritarum. May I ever be accepted. May I ever allow we desire to come to pass. And so we all say, Ashe. Divine all blessed greetings and salutations, elevation, revelations, and manifestation. You are now sitting live with the Divine Prince, Pan-African spiritualist, practitioner, author, and advisor, Elagun Oloye Hudu Obea Bokur sharing with you in all things spiritual, mystical, metaphysical, cosmic, evolutionary, revolutionary, healing, and holistic from a Pan-African hoodoo world spiritualist perspective. Understanding that all is truly and indeed a blessing. If you can just see beyond the veil, for it is all just an illusion and a test, and one of the greatest divine mysteries of this life cycle. This is indeed my constant prayer, my mantra, affirmation, reverberation. It is my reiteration and indeed my ever-living reality. It is crucial to the very foundation of my understanding, my teaching, my walk, my work along this divine, all-blessed life path and journey. And it is how I, the Divine Prince, make sense out of all that we are challenged with here in this daily existence on Mother, Father, Earth. And it is my personal place of power and understanding, that place from where I begin, from where I realize and crystallize all my endeavors, understanding that I and I alone create and co-create my divine destiny, and I and I alone create and co-create my divine, all-blessed reality. And so it is, Ashe. Asheo and Ashe. Today is Friday, October 2nd, 2020, and I am emanating and vibrating with you and for you live, virtually, verbally, cosmically, quantum, universally, from this working temple of the House of the Divine Prince. High Potions, Hoodoo Central, Black Hawk Voodoo, in this legendary, historic, beautiful, and most enchanted city in America, New Orleans, Louisiana, the land of my ancestors and those who came before me along this Hoodoo Obea life path and journey, passing down that great Obea stick, along with the knowledge of the life-giving herbs, roots, plants, spirits, rituals, minerals, and indeed the legacy, the culture, the tradition, the history, and as my beloved Denise Augustine would say, our sacred stories, our sacred stories, and I have a very special surprise for you today. (laughs) Denise is going to join us here live momentarily on air, my beloved 
best friend, my partner, my favorite historian, my favorite tour guide in this beloved city of New Orleans, Louisiana. And for what I hear, your favorite tour guide as well. So she will be joining us here momentarily on screen, and I invite you to join us as well to please follow the link as it is posted in the chat. I'm also going to scroll it across the bottom of your screen once again. For those of you who don't have a video camera or webcam, um, you can also join me live on the phone line at area code 845-277-9143, When you're ready with your question, comment, or request, do press the number one on your telephone keypad. I'll be more than happy to unmute your mic and bring you into the conversation. Uh, greetings, beloved. Hello, my darling. And how art thou today? You looking lovely. You looking like something. Doing wonderful. And we going I had an early start. Are you? Yes, yes. You're looking Ooh. lovely. Thank you so much for being present with us today and introducing our sacred stories to a new platform and a new technology. Well, I'm happy to do it. You know, October is my favorite month of the year here in New Orleans. The weather is absolutely beautiful. It's also a time to prepare uh, for winter and when when cold weather comes. So now it's the last time to get out to prepare your gardens for winter, to clean things out so you're not so bound by things in the coming months, and it is a time to prepare to get your final work for the year, the things that you have said I want to do this year. Now, this has been a strange one. This year has been strange, but it doesn't mean that at least some of the things that you wanted to accomplish, you will be able to accomplish. So now's the time, while the weather is beautiful, to prepare for it. And so that's what our sacred stories is doing. Um, I am writing new tours. Uh, I am uh, cleaning my ancestor altar, adding things to it, preparing for when I'm sheltered in to get the final things done for this year. Yes, yes. And I agree with uh, Matthew Ferguson. That chapeau is everything, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. You're bringing Thank it. you. Yes, you're bringing it. Um, and I, again, I welcome each and every one of you to join us here live on screen, if you will, by following the link that's scrolling, the StreamYard link that's scrolling at the bottom of the screen during the conversation. It's going to be a good one today, y'all. It's going to be a good one. I also invite you, if you don't have a webcam, to get on the phone lines at area code 845 Seven seven nine one four three eight four five two seven seven nine one four three. When you're ready with your question, comment, or request, first be patient with me because I have to switch back and forth between screens to see you when you're in the Block Talk Radio. If you press that number one, it'll alert me that there's a caller in queue, and I'll bring you into the the conversation. And I invite you to turn up your mic. Speak really loud when you're on the Block Talk Radio uh, phone line so 
that the viewers in YouTube, Instagram, StreamYard can hear you clearly. The information I want to share with you today is not so different or unique to voodoo and hoodoo and and the many other ATR-based conversations that we have. Uh, I often like to share books, book links, websites, study information. Many of you in this audience like to research, like to read, like to study for yourselves. And when I can take note of a, a book or an article or dissertation, I like to bring it back to the audience, and particularly when it's a good thing. This one is called Cunning Folk. Cunning Folk and Conjurers. You know, back in the day, uh, Denise, they used to call us Cunning Folk. article is about folk magic, particularly in colonial Virginia. Now, you might say, well, why does colonial Virginia matter to me? I'm in the Carolinas, or I'm in Georgia, or I'm in Louisiana, or I'm in wherever you might be located. Remembering that our first President George Washington hailed from this colonial Virginia location that this document and all this connected information is pulled from. I want to talk about the use of folk magic in colonial Virginia, and particularly in the footprint, the archaeological footprint of George Washington's plantation and those enslaved thereof. The use of folk magic may seem foreign and exotic to many of us in the 21st century. I also want to note, in the 21st century, I also want to note that often when researching our stuff, you just can't put voodoo in the search engine sometimes. I don't care if it has a U in it or if it's got four O's in it. You just can't put conjure in a search engine sometimes. You can't just put hoodoo in the search engine sometimes. As we've discussed previously, what's most popular is going to be most accessible. What's most promoted is going to be most accessible. But if you're looking for a footprint, archaeology, history, documents, then you have to be a little more tricky with your words. And one of the words that our practices, our traditions were often masked behind, hidden behind, and some would say even appropriated behind, because taking it out of the realm of voodoo, the realm of airway, the realm of Yoruba, the, the realm of fun, makes it less about ethnicity and more about folk magic, folk magic. And under the umbrella of folk magic, then it's all American, according to the authors. So the usage of folk magic and it being documented in the archives of America will often hide the secrets of our past, of our tradition. And indeed, that platform which I stand on, which is that if we could remember how to count in Fon, in Yoruba, in Akan, in Ewe, we're only now being learned, forced to learn to count in Portuguese, in Spanish, in French, and subsequently in English. And the colony that I'm pulling from in, in, in colonial Virginia uh, is particularly English or particularly 
uh, British, and particularly uh, at the time leading up to the presidency of George Washington. If we look closer, though, it is apparent that some modern Americans still practice folk magic today and don't realize it. Have you ever hunted for a four-leaf clover? Have you ever hung a horseshoe over your door? If, if so, you're practicing a particular type of folk magic. Folk magic is and was thought to be a way to influence forces, both seen and unseen, for good or for evil. It is sometimes referred to as low magic, not because it's seen as evil, but because it was passed down generationally rather than learned from books or formal tutors and, and initiatory structures. And we've talked about the presence or lack thereof of initiatory processes as we know them in the Americas compared to a Cuban colony, which allowed for the development, the organized development of Lukumi and Santeria as long as they converted to Catholicism. We often, in most cases, had to go underground, had to hide, had to conceal, had to tuck away not only our magic, if you will, our religious structures from, from the motherland, but also our awareness of knowledge. We're talking about a time when we weren't allowed to read weren't allowed to learn the Bible, weren't allowed to study religion in, in any form out, out in, the, in the open. So folk magic is a way that often what we knew that could be documented by the book authors, by, by the documentarians, would be then documented, would then show a footprint uh, in, in the archives. High magic has its own fascinating history, but this is particularly in relation to everyday folk magic of the 18th century Virginians, both black and white, which we subsequently began to refer to as hoodoo. If, if we don't say folk magic, we then say hoodoo when we start mixing cultures and traditions from a, from a uniquely American and colonial American perspective. Europeans and Africans in British North America brought with them spiritual, religious, magical traditions from their homeland. The, the Brits brought European ideas of magic, and the enslaved Africans brought African-based systems, or those who had made their way through the Caribbean islands into the Virginia colony brought those remnants of what we now know as obia, who do root work into the British America, if you will. One modern archaeologist says that this blending process makes it hard to tell exactly who's using what folk tradition when creating some of the material culture of folk magic. And, and when they say material culture, we mean documenting it books and subsequently making it usable, sellable, accessible to people beyond just the original ethnic group or community that 
occupied and created many of the things that have found their way into modern-day ritual practice. One of those things uh, that may have contributed to the cross-cultural blending is the similarities between English and African folk magic traditions. Both groups recognized there were some people who were set apart from the rest of the group. These individuals were believed to possess spiritual power that made them respected, feared, or both. African and English traditions also shared a belief in magical objects, even everyday objects that could be imbued with a power, with an energy. And lastly, both groups believed in the power of burying magical objects for protection or even to do harm. People thought talented in the magical arts were known as cunning folk in the English, English American tradition and as conjurers in the African, African American tradition. Conjuring folk or cunning folk were not witches who were thought to inhabit the fringes of society, but rather were practitioners of a magic which healed the sick, bewitch those who, who would otherwise do harm, foretold uh, future, predicted uh, 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 coming events, could identify thieves and those who would commit crimes, and of course could ultimately induce love. Description of cunning folk is very similar to W.E.B. Du Bois' definition of the conjurer, the healer of the sick, the interpreter of the unknown, the comforter of the sorrowing or the bereaving, the supernatural avenger of those who've been wrong, and particularly those unjustly wrong. The rest of Dubois' quote, however, highlights an essential difference between white cunning folk and the enslaved conjurer. The conjurer was also the only one who rudely but picturesquely expressed the longing, disappointment, resentment of a stolen and oppressed people. Despite their many similarities, enslaved conjurers and cunning folk operated in very different realities. In Dubois' estimation, the conjurer did more than just take care of the physical and spiritual needs of the enslaved. He or she took on the weight of slavery itself. Both conjurers and cunning folk created magical charms, charged objects with magical meaning. At George Washington's Ferry Farm, we found an, an excellent example of an object charged with meaning. In this article, and I'm going to um, paste the link back to the article in the chat. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for being present and and actively being a part of the show. Uh, and Denise, whenever you got a comment, just feel free to just jump on in there. Well, um, most of the time, though, though there were men, you heard the term wise woman mm-hmm. in uh, in, in New Orleans or Louisiana, since the word voodoo or hoodoo 
had been so demonized, mm -hmm. when you were troubled or you were sick and the doctor could not find out what was wrong with you when you were undiagnosed, uh, when trouble kept visiting you for no reason, like the luck was just horrible, mm -hmm. then you would seek out one of these wise women who held the uh, pain and suffering and secrets of the community. What's interesting about that is that there was a woman or two or three in every neighborhood mm -hmm. you could find one of these wise women. My grandmother was one of them. And a knock, I would be playing in the living room where she sat, and a knock would come on the door. And at those days, we didn't lock the screen door. And she'd say, yes. Yeah. And they'd open the door. That most of the time, a woman would say, can you talk? And she said, yeah, come on in. Well, at that point, she would tell me, go in the back and play. I need to talk to Miss so-and-so, whoever it was that I knew because this was somebody in the neighborhood. And this woman would come and tell her trouble, uh, get advice, told what to do and how to do it, or go and get certain things. Uh, for instance, go and get some bluing, bring me nine pieces of a white sheet, clean white sheet different things to come. And so then uh, these things would be made. Prayers would be laid down. Uh, just everything that you need spiritually uh, and not only spiritually, but you have somebody to share your burdens with. So I never heard the word honey folk, but I did, I have heard I need to see a wise woman, and this wise woman would provide all of these things that you're talking about. Yes, and there would be, you know, maybe she would have something particular set out on the porch that would identify her uh, to people who were looking for her and, and mm -hmm. what item, you know, to, 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 to identify. Um, also, mm -hmm. she might be busy or not available. So she might put that, that flower pot, you know, in a particular location, you know, mm -hmm. and, and people then otherwise, you know, might not stop by, you know, and, and interact. Right. I uh, put a link to the article in, in the chat. And in this um, article, there's a photograph that I'm going to describe uh, here from, uh, from the text. Both conjurers and cunning folks cunning folk created magical charms and charged objects with magical meaning. So there's a photo here at George Washington's Ferry Farm where we have an excellent example of an object charged with meaning. And it's a carnelian bead excavated on the property, which may indicate that a powerful conjurer uh, might have lived there during Washington's time. This bead is similar to two beads that were found in Barbados, and archaeologist Jerome Handler asserts that these carnelian beads were the product of Cambay, India, and were indications of the status of the person with whom they were buried with. Dave 
Morocco Director of Archaeology at Berry Farm describes all three beads are generally reddish orange in color with a tapered end and, and cylindrical shape. Each one has eight longitudinal facets or four and four beveled facets at each end. And the main difference between the Washington site bead and the Barbadian uh, bead is the size, with the Barbadian beads being almost twice as long as the ones recovered at the Washington farm. Uh, and there could be many reasons for that. One basic reason would be it would have to be concealed to a greater degree in a plantation in, in Virginia, in colonial Virginia, than on a Barbadian plantation necessarily. And cunning folk also made objects with magical meaning. Written charms or amulets were popular since they were easy to conceal and could be hidden or worn on the body. These terms often served as protection for people, protection for livestock against witch attacks. Um, an example of these terms can be found in Colonial Williamsburg's similar collection. These small pieces of paper dating to 1700 promised to protect the wearer from any manner of witchcraft or evil spirits. The amulet invokes the power of the faith and the intervention of Jesus Christ on behalf of the afflicted woman. It closes with amen, 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 and fiat, 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 fiat being the Latin Latin translation for amen. And, and I want you to take note that this dates to 1700. The Haitian Revolution that people like to hang all voodoo on didn't occur until 1791. So this footprint was well ingrained uh, in, in both the North and the South antebellum uh, enslaved America. It was not uncommon for black and white practitioners to bury magical objects for protection. The nature of these objects may have been different. But the intent was the same, warding off evil, restoring peace to the household, keeping someone from being sold away or, or sent away uh, from, the, from the plantation, from that location. At Ferry Farm, an archaeologist has discovered whole oysters deliberately buried in the stone mine cellar of George Washington's house. The act of, burn, of, of burying the oysters which were seen as magical objects in the African-American community, was likely an effort to protect the home. They were often used in burial rituals and were associated with death and the afterlife, an association that makes the oyster shells found at Ferry Farm all that much more um, intriguing. English, English Americans also buried objects for protection but some of the objects they buried were man-made rather than a product of the natural world. Witch bottles, often glass bottles filled with pins, nails, even human urine, were designed to cure the afflicted of his or her bewitchment. A witch bottle found 
near in Georgia Beach, Virginia, known as the Great Neck Witch Bottle, dates to 1690 to 1750. Archaeologist M. Chris Manning described it as being a small, narrow, light green glass medicine vial was found buried in an introverted or upside-down position containing 25 brass pins and three iron nails. It may have also contained the urine of the bewitched at some point. These bottles were designed to hunt witches. Their pins and needles were thought to injure those who placed malevolent spells on the innocent. In both the African African American and the English English American tradition, these buried objects were tasked with banishing evil forces in an effort to bring in positivity and peace to the household. These are just a few examples of the similarities between African and English folk magic traditions. There are significant differences in part because magic was part of African cosmology, meaning religion and music were tied together, sometimes to the point where it's hard to tell one end from the, from the other's beginning. This is different from the English tradition, where religion and folk magic were seen as separate, at least officially, Religious and secular authority figures in colonial America condemned the use of folk magic, but this did little to stem the tide of magic popularity. We also know that colonial uh, America would have identified folk magic as witchcraft, whereas voodoo is not witchcraft. Voodoo to the enslaved African would, would not have been viewed immediately and readily as as a form of witchcraft, but more as uh, Denise described, an an opportunity to release, to gain healing, to gain access to something that might otherwise be withheld from you, and of course all forms of of defense and protection, for which in the environment of, of enslavement we would have needed a great deal of. The next time you pick up a lucky penny or cross your fingers, Remember that you are participating in an older, some would even say forgotten practice of folk culture, folk magic, folk belief. And again, to some degree, they have so mixed that they're now, just like jazz, viewed as being an American tradition. I can't hear you, Denise. Oh, wait a minute. I guess. Folk magic and have no idea these, these, that they're doing so. It is so embedded in our everyday lives. I remember, and the fact that you said that that bead was Indian, it, I'm curious about because my ancestors, like me, make made blessing oil. And the person that provided the oil, his name is lost in history, but from oral history, he was called the Turk. I can only guess that this man was Turkish, and he provided not only perfume oil for them to work with, 
but he provided lingerie and these kind of things for the girls in Storyville. So he was importing this stuff that we couldn't readily get in our community, and so he provided those things to the hoodoo practitioners who were making blessing oils or uh, uh, perfume oils. And, and the tradition is to sing a prayer while making the oil that you're making. So if you're making protection oil, you sing protection songs, or, or you invoke a spirit of protection while making that oil. So, so I can understand when they talked about singing while doing these uh, rituals or making these products. That is, is definitely a part of New Orleans culture also. You made love oil. You sang about love and about uh, uh, emotional attachment and even sexual uh, 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 contact and expressions of those, of those uh, things, how love uh, expresses itself. So singing is definitely a part of making product, and that is to magnetize it. And we are the most magnetized city in the nation when it comes to Africa. The tears of those Africans that landed in New Orleans, who had the largest slave uh, port in America. And so we know that the Mississippi River is magnetized with the tears of these Africans as they were offloaded on the King's Plantation to be brought back to health to be sold. So that's why the Mississippi River is so important to our ritualistic lives here in New Orleans. And I've known people who travel here to drop packages in that river to send it back. And in Mississippi, right? and in Mississippi as well. I also think, too, it's important to just add to what you just said. Um, we were enslaved, and so uh, let's not gloss over sort of the uh, more feared aspect um, of the work, and, and that was for all manner of defense, protection, you know, uh, rape, you know, molestation, families yeah. being separated, you know, and, and so there were many tools that we would have drawn from originally for, for those purposes of revolution, of, of liberation. Uh, for about the last half century, historians of American slavery have sought to combat racist understandings of slave life and culture and illustrate the agency that slaves had, not just in their day-to-day lives, but also in affecting change within the broader system of Atlantic slavery. These acts range from eschewing plantation work responsibilities to full-scale violent revolt, an aspect often conspicuously absent from studies of slave life and resistance is the influence of African religious practices, witchcraft, healing, other types of, of, of folk magical practices were implemented by the enslaved throughout the Americas, and historians have referred to these practices collectively as conjure. The concept of conjure has worked as a framework for historians to understand the broad set of magical practices that were implemented by African Americans in the Americas, as these practices often 
fat outside of a fully understood conception of religion. Or so was thought, so that was what was thought. And again, there's always the opportunity for someone else who's telling our story, who's writing our story, who's documenting our story, to not know how to translate what they, what they don't know into the material or to continue that process of trying to remove our power, to, to take the power of religion, of culture away from us. Once it becomes folk magic, once it becomes conjure, it's open to everyone. It's an open playing field for all manner of witchery, all all manner of of black magic. And so in studying these documents, reading these books, I think it's really important to understand sort of the mindset of, of our people in regards to, indeed, folk magic ancestral honoring and acknowledgement, and accessing the deities, the Loa, the Orisha, that we come to understand as being forces of nature, as opposed to witchcraft, as, as opposed to other forms of, of um, ego magic, if you will. Greetings, uh, Neophyte Bocor. Thank you for coming in. Greetings, greetings. Um, how's everybody doing? All is a blessing. As always, and as it should. Um, yeah, I, I was uh, chiming in. I just turned it back on after a fuel in my truck, um, where everybody were we were talking about uh, Mississippi and how essentially it's a super highway for uh, the slave trade, and before that. Much before that, much, much much earlier than just the transatlantic in the 1600s, but in the 1500s, the Mississippi and all of the the rivers that branch off from it runs through the United States like a, a great tree, like a like the branches of a tree. Just take a look at a map that looks like uh, that just covers the rivers. It almost looks like the tree of life that runs through America. And I was just in uh, uh, Winnebago, Winnebago, uh, Nebraska, in between uh, Iowa and Nebraska, where I stumbled across uh, a conjoining river. And I was curious about why it was just Native American country, that it is clearly a sign saying that I was entering Native, uh, Native country when I entered into Winnebago. That's when I dug into the, the name, the terminology of, of Winnebago and, and how, yes, it's a native name, but it's a native name, it's a native name for Swedish people that were using that river to get up there to establish their village. It, was, it blew my mind out of the water. I, I, and it, you can see the folk magic in their culture still lingering, even into their signage when they're naming their streets, uh, their windmills that are up, that are, um, uh, I don't know, uh, not like monuments for them or, or something, like her- uh, World Heritage Sites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I just stumbled on I, I, 
I had no intention of actually doing any research. I was just trying to get out of Nebraska, and I just so happened to come through this sleepy little village in between Ohio and Nebraska where I had seen evidence of magic. I think it's also important, too, um, another article that I'm going to pop in, into the chat uh, that came out um, today or, or in the last few days. Um, back in the summer, July 27th, uh, 23andMe did a DNA study which traces the genetic consequences of transatlantic slave trade back to DNA. Now, we've talked before about ancestral memory surviving in the blood. Um, I say at least once every show, if we could remember how to count in Fon or Khan or Airway or Yoruba, then, then indeed we're now just being forced to learn to count in the European language, but we could indeed retain knowledge of self, if you will. So evidence of some of the horrors of the transatlantic slave trade can now still be found in the DNA of African Americans today, according to the research. Now, the research that I shared with you about this topic last summer was just the notion that ancestral memory survives in the blood. But they didn't get this specific. This new updated um, article is specific about DNA of African Americans holding, possessing PTSD, post-traumatic slave disorder. Researchers from consumer genetics company 23andMe studied genetic data of more than 50,000 people and compared it to historical documentation of where people were taken from in Africa, where they were enslaved in the Americas, said Stephen Micheletti, a population geneticist at 23andMe and study co-author. The genetic results largely matched the historical record. Micheletti said, noting that historians estimated 5.7 million people were taken from West Central Africa, and his team found the strongest genetic connection between people in that region. But researchers also found key differences that may shed light on the brutality of slavery and how it operated different in different regions. According to the study published on Thursday in the American Journal of Human Genetics, and again, this was uh, originally posted in the USA Today, July 27, 2020. July 27, 2020. Micheletti, for example, said he was surprised to learn that African Americans have a higher proportion of African ancestry than people of African descent in South America. Even though many more enslaved people were sent to South America, than to the United States. Now, now I'm going to read that again for clarity, because, because again, we, we often think that Jamaica is somehow more black, Haiti is somehow more rooted, you know, uh, Cuba is somehow more authentic to West African culture and tradition. And according to the 23andMe research and, and the study co-author, Micheletti, was surprised to learn that African Americans have a 
higher proportion of African ancestry than people in African of, of African descent in South America, even though many more enslaved people were sent to South America. Like Brazil had the, had the largest population count of enslaved Africans. It is said that we had the smallest population count in the new world of, of enslaved Africans here in the U.S. And I've never entirely believed that either um, because we know there was a great deal of uh, shadow waste, lives that were wasted, whether it be through sickness, disease, oh, yeah. maliciousness. Those that died, those that died on, the, on the voyage could have yeah. been twice as many as that, that, that got here. But I'm going to show you how trauma has played a part on our DNA, on our DNA, and that we still carry the trauma. Black women are the only people on the planet that can have a um, a EKG that looks abnormal. In other words, when you look at an EKG on the baseline. The very first wave is an upside-down U. It's above the baseline, upside-down U. It goes just like this, called the P wave. And black women between the ages of 35 and 55, we're the only people on the planet that can have an inverted P wave. In other words, our EKG can look like this, inverted P wave and be absolutely normal for just us. If you saw this inverted P-wave in any other group on this planet, that person would have a heart problem. But in black women, because we have endured so much and because we have carried so much trauma, our, our, our EKG is absolutely normal with an inverted P wave. And I learned that when I went to EKG school. Told me do not do not think this woman has an issue if you see her and she's this black between this age group. So we still carry the trauma. We still carry the memory. If you remember old people would look at a child mm-hmm. and they'd question that baby, three, four years old, and do you like this? And is that, uh, and they would watch this child, and then you would hear somebody say, oh, Lord, that's my sister, then come back. And this was very common in the black community. If a child uh, expressed certain behavior mm-hmm. that wouldn't normally be childlike, then they would watch them and find out just who's that that has returned. This is very common in our mm-hmm. traditions also. That's right. So, now, now Mitchell Letty, um, uh, remember my last point was that there's a higher population of African ancestry in African Americans as opposed to Africans in South America. Uh, he has two explanations for this. In places like Brazil, Cuba, slave owners were more likely to let slaves die than worry about their health. While in the U.S., they would essentially breed people to maintain the enslaved workforce. Genetic data also shows that enslaved women 
contributed to the present-day gene pool at a higher rate, despite the fact that more than 60% of the enslaved people who were brought to the Americas were male. In the U.S., African women contributed to the gene pool about 1.5 times more than African men. In Central America, the Latin Caribbean and parts of South America enslaved women contributed to the gene pool about 13 to 17 times more. The biases in the gene pool towards enslaved African women and European men can be attributed to the well-documented generations of race, sexual exploitation against enslaved women by slave owners, study authors wrote. But the significant differences between the U.S. and Latin America was a surprise. Micheletti explained that higher mortality rates among enslaved men and racial whitening policies in Latin America also are potential explanations for this ethnic discrepancy. In the U.S., slave owners promoted segregation in addition to coercing enslaved people to have more children. Far more people in the U.S. and Latin America had Nigerian ancestry than expected based on historical records. This discrepancy is the result of the intercolonial slave trade that occurred between the British Caribbean and other parts of the United States between 1619 and 1807. And just a quick sidebar, I got proof that slavery was going on in the Americas at least 100 years before 1619. But we'll we'll discuss that at a later time. Okay. Um, So this discrepancy is a result of the intercolonial slave trade that occurred between the British Caribbean and other parts of the United States between 1619 and 1807 presumably to maintain the slave economy as transatlantic slave trading was increasingly prohibited. These voyages would spread African ancestry common in the British Caribbean to other regions of the Americas that were not in direct trade with specific regions of Africa, according to the study. While Nigerian ancestry was overrepresented, ancestry from the region of Senegal and Gambia, one of the first African regions from which people were enslaved, is underrepresented, according to the study. Study authors suggest that over time, more and more children from the region were enslaved, and that pattern combined with unsanitary conditions led to lower rates of survival. It is also possible that Senegambians died more often because they were taken to dangerous rice plantations, which were generally rampant with malaria. Micheletti also states that he hopes to explore these hypotheses for the discrepancies uh, more deeply in, in coming in coming years. We offer a lot of these potential explanations, but need to go and physically test these explanations, he said, 
We'd also like to kind of shape results and put them into a more personal context for 23andMe customers. This also speaks to a reoccurring question here on the show um, about the updating of your DNA results. Some people translate that as changing, but your results aren't changing. They're being much more refined with the larger number of copies, the larger number of uh, test tubes that they have representing right. a bigger uh, population. You get you know. a larger population uh, to test from. You get a larger population to test from the more people that send in their DNA. Mm-hmm. But when the slave trade ended, when they outlawed their transatlantic slave trade, remember, cotton was just starting to become king in the South, and they had to uh, provide the South with with slaves. So what they did was they set up slave breeding camps. And a young girl from the age of 10 or 11 would be continually raped until she was no longer able to reproduce. And black men died of exhaustion, of sexual exhaustion. You can die from it. That they were forced to perform to, to that's where the, the word MS comes from. Because they didn't care whether or not you were raping your mother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All they knew was that your mother was still producing uh, uh, children. And so that's where the term MS came from. But you could be raped right beside your mother continually. And the only rest you got was after you uh, uh, produced the child and, and you were still uh, uh, bleeding. But as soon as you were able to, you would be raped again. And that's where also the term the fear of being sold south. You see, the south had uh, pushed all the Native Americans off the land. After 1812, Andrew Jackson promised these Native Americans in Louisiana and Mississippi that if they fought the Battle of New Orleans and kept the British away, that they would be safe and secure on their land. And then the Cherokee Trail of Tears, then the Trail of Tears came, and they forced these people off their land so that cotton can be produced. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first thing that drove slavery was sugar. And it drove it even more after 1795 when they learned to commercially refine sugar. Because in the beginning, all they did was made molasses. Sugar's very addictive. So, yeah, slave breeding camp, the forced marching of slaves down south, uh, it's a wonder. The wonder we still, it's no wonder to me that we still carry the trauma of, of, of these actions. So, and it's no wonder that we have such a large amount of West African DNA in the United States. So. And you just, you, you just invoked the history of my house, this house that I'm living in, because it was Norbert's reload. Yeah, my um. Norman Reelu was my mask started vibrating after that one. <laughs> yeah, Norman, Norman Reelu was the American yeah. inventor who was widely considered one of the earliest chemical engineers. And That's noted, right. And noted for his pioneering intervention of multiple effect evaporator, which created the various ways of refining sugar. Multiple pairs. Right. Yes. That and you lived in the house that he lived in. That he built. And he filed this patent in France to keep him from stealing it from him. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, he was a Creole. That's right, real youth. And you know who is kin to? He's kin to the artist um, that uh, is buried in France in Paris Chaise. He only spent one summer here, and the house is on Esplanade. And if you give me a minute, it just slipped out my brain. When I remember it, I'll give it to you. Okay. He, all those, all those Creoles, to all those white people. That's one of the reasons I don't think we, in the 1960s, we didn't have riots like in California and stuff like that. I think it, one of the reasons was because we were just so uh, interrelated and had such a history of interracial uh, uh, mixing that I don't, uh, I think that was one of the reasons why they didn't riot and burn down the French Quarter. Now, that was a, a, a that was a powerful statement. I've always wondered about that, and I'm sure that there are uh, people listening to us right now, particularly younger folk, who, who've always had questions about that. Um, I was raised, as you know, as far north in the south as you could go in, in Maryland. So the idea was somehow that our relatives... Ooh, excuse me, that our relatives here in the South were somehow weaker or, or somehow broken or, or, or somehow more under the foot, you know, of the man, so to speak, than, than our Northern counterparts. But if you've ever lived in the North for any degree of time, you know that that's not true. The North is, is more, Martin Luther King said the North is more, more racist than the, than the South. South. Yes. But, but you remember, the French Quarter, 50% of the French Quarter was owned by black women at one point. So the people who have a long history in in New Orleans can walk to a house and say, my great-great-grandmother used to own that house. That could be one of the reasons why it wasn't burned down. It was because uh, not only our interrelationship. But because of our, our history is so interrelated. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, se- segregation is, Cremet was, was a, a, a segregated community back during slavery. Claude Cremet actually broke his, uh, um, separated his plantation into plots and sold them to black people. And Cremet's wife was a black woman. Mm-hmm. So this was interracial marriages. Not only that, Remember, after the Civil War, for many years after, now remember, Reconstruction only lasts, what, 12 years. Mm -hmm. But during that time, interracial marriage was legal in the South, in Louisiana. But we have a long, honey, I didn't get this color because my mother prayed milk, okay? So we have a long, long history of, of this kind of, and remember, they were fresh. But I, I really wish I could save this. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, I really wish I could save this uh, this conversation because it's one you of the can. primary reasons why I have my daughter watching Princess and the Frog right now. Is because I know exactly what you're talking about. But Disney tends to put it their little spin on it, but I can't wait till she grows up and start asking me these questions. Well, you know who's a Prince and a Frog? You know who 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 that? Young girl was based on that was Liz Chase. They based the Prince of on Liz Chase's Dookie Chase's restaurant and her gumbo recipe. And if you look at the Voodoo Prince, <laughs> they stole that from time. Yes, 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 
What they, was the... they stole me. They stole Leah Chase. They borrowed from Kalinda Laveau. They borrowed from Ava K. Jones.
but I'm a reliable. And the first thing I told Ty, I said, Ty, I'm coming for a reading. But I need you to understand that you have got to move any personal feelings about me out of here. And I asked him, I said, can you separate yourself and your love for me? Can you separate it out of this reading? And Ty said, I promise you, I won't get involved in this reading that I'll let it be all spirit. And so when I sat down and Ty started, the very first thing that came up is something that I'm working on, that spiritually working on. And nobody but me and the four walls of my home knew, know what this is. But the very mm-hmm. first thing that come up in this reading was on point. I got so shocked I had to adjust myself in the seat like I'm doing now. <laughs> I, I told him, I said, Ty, I said, I receive and accept that because I know I didn't share this with nobody. Because when you're working on something big or something as serious as I'm working on, I could not release that energy. I've got to let energy up. And I've got to work on it all day, every day, this move that I'm about to make. And the very first thing that came up, when I walked out of that reading with, with, with a friend of mine, not a stranger, when I walked out of that reading with Todd, I was absolutely shocked. It is the very first time in the many years that I've known him that I asked him for a reading. And he shocked me, who's inside of this spiritual world. He shocked me so bad. I called him later on that day. I said, I don't know what you tapped into, but you definitely got me. You got me. That reading was on point. So I'm still working because I told him, I said, I'm just waiting. Told me, what did you tell me, Ty? 60 to 90 days? Ty? 30 to 90 days. 30 to 90 days that I would see results. So I told I called Ty and said, Ty, I'm waiting on the you know, between that time. And Ty said, You gotta continue to work. You can't sit. You gotta work even you gotta work even more. So Five o'clock this morning, I was up working with the spirit. I had to. I had to. Well, if my eyes fly open, that means they want to. They want to. They want to be present. So when my eyes flew open at five o'clock this morning, I started working. I started working. So that's powerful. That's encouraging, right there. Oh yeah. You, if your eyes open in the morning, spirit wants you out of that bed, and they want they want you to start working on what you're supposed to be working on. If you wake up, there's a reason for it. Get out to bed. You can always take a nap during the day. Go to bed early the next night. But if spirit wakes you up at 5 o'clock, it's time to do the work. Do not wait. So, anyway, Ty, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave because I have to run an errand for somebody, and I want to get it done before the 3 o'clock, before the traffic starts at 5 do you need me for anything? You know, all is a blessing. I have to move thank forward. I um Yeah, thank you, darling. Bye. I'm booked up today. Ooh. So um <laughs> Yeah, that's what I'm working on now. Okay. All is a blessing. And I appreciate you all for 
being present in the middle of your day, high noon U.S. Central Standard Time, here to be a part of this sacred space, this shared space of gods and goddesses, if you will. But I invite your participation. I invite, I invite your questions, your comments, your requests. Uh, my phone line is 845-277-9143, 845-277-9143. And, of course, you could always join us here live on the screen. I also want to share with you um, two trailers, two trailers. Uh, I thought I had them up on my screen, so give me a second to get this together here. Um, one of them happened to be that trailer that I spotted you in earlier. That's one of them. <laughs> that's one of them. Yes. That was awesome. That took me by surprise. <laughs> And I'm telling you, you still can't really see me in that trailer. <laughs> you think you're seeing me in that trailer. You're not seeing I'm actually behind where you're looking in, in, mm. in that trailer. Um, the, all, the, all the movement, and you can see the horse tail move through the scene. Uh, that, that would be me. Why not? Oh, here it is. Okay, so um, the right. first trailer I want to share is um, an upcoming production called Spell. And it is uh, the guy from Power. What's the actor's name who's featured in, in, in the TV series Power? He's actually in this uh, upcoming horror movie. It's a, it's a horror movie. Can't recall his name right now. I, I stopped watching Power a long time ago because it, it, I didn't like the energy coming off of it. It just started changing. <laughs> it just, you know, <laughs> in just really yes. dramatic ways. And, and I felt Empire was the same thing. Empire also, when Empire mm-hmm. first came out, it was radical and revolutionary. <laughs> and they were going to break records and, you know, do things, uh, you know, a bit of a shake-up, and then it just got stale and corny yeah. over time. And then, of course, once the whole um, debacle in Chicago, I, I was just done with the show after that. <laughs> okay, so the first trailer, I, I got it together, y'all. The first trailer I want to share is an up-and-coming horror movie. I am not in this movie, though I should have been in this movie. I don't know what they were thinking to do a movie like this without me. But uh, it's called Spell. When I grew up, another world in this one. My father was stuck in time a little bit. What was he like? He was religious. Just different. Like superstition. Thank you. 
Loretta Divine. Uh, that's going to be crazy. It's called Spell. I'm curious about how y'all feel about that. Um, we're gaining some prominence, some some mainstream awareness. Our tradition, root work, kanja, hoodoo, voodoo. But how do you feel about the continued appropriation of voodoo, of hoodoo, of kanja for things that speak to darkness? things that speak to the evil. Uh, they resurrected the voodoo doll in this movie. And though I like how they did it, um, are we really wanting to continue to further sort of that footprint, that representation um, of our tradition? The next trailer I want to show you, I'm actually in. And this is called... Uh, Synchronic. Synchronic. We filmed this last summer here in Little Old New Orleans. And it's called Synchronic. Coming to a theater near you. You know, they say we see everything once in this place. Pretty sure we're going to see it.
you know, let's also talk about the politics of being the first black anything or, or trying to in, in, increase the quote-unquote black footprint of anything. And it kind of puts me back in the mindset of the 60s and in the 70s and black exploitation, which had everything to do with the black awakening consciousness uh, of that time period and our desire for more imagery that looked like us, more, you know, scenarios within the, the script writing that resonated with us, but, but, but it somehow always turns into this overtly stereotypical demonstration. And, and until there, there are not only more of us creating and recreating the material, uh, but also the audience, you can't complain about, you know, buffoonery and then keep spending your money on buffoonery. <laughs> you can't complain about, you know, it's too ghetto, but, but then spend all your money on, on the ghetto publication. Uh, if we definitely want to see more diversity and more realistic depiction of our culture and particularly our culture through our eyes, uh, just because it's a black producer or a black director does not necessarily mean what's being produced is, is through our eyes. If we aren't controlling the financing of these products, then, then whoever controls the purse strings ultimately is going to control the, the message, the, the theme that's being demonstrated in, in these publications, uh, whether it be books, movies, uh, even in terms of, of music. And when hip-hop, for instance, you know, got a little more diverse, got a little bit more open, many of you complained about that. Many of you complained about Will Smith. Some of y'all complained about Queen Latifah, said these people wasn't hard anymore. They gave up their ghetto card, you know. And so we've got to decide, do we want realistic, truthful depictions? Along with entertainment, you know, and or, or do we only get one option? Do we only get one choice? Neophyte Boku, are you with me? Yes, sir, always. Um, yeah, because you're, you're making some good points here, right? We can't necessarily have it both ways uh, when it comes to uh, – whether or not we, we, we want the real, uh, are we going to allow our artists that are representing us to grow and, and come into their own as far as their life? They can't always, you know, be Craig from Friday if we know that's Ice Cube and he's writing out um, um, agenda statements with other people to try to elevate the culture, Right. And I personally think that we can have it both ways, but you have to be willing to okay. you, you have to be willing to support both. You see, see, that's my thing. You know, when we think of the big budget film or, or the targeted film, the film that's targeted, you know, to our community, often it's about, you know, how much money does it make over the content. And when, when content-based material is put out, we often don't support it with our, do, our dollars. You know, we want to bootleg it, <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> right, are right. they still doing that, by the way? <laughs> are there still bootleggers <laughs> even existing in our in our culture, or have they shut that down completely? It, it's more like uh, virtual hacking, where somebody will have it and they'll jailbreak like your your Roku box or something, and then you're able to have access to it. It's the same thing, just on a more digital scale. Uh, it's no a little more complicated. Yeah, but no yeah, this is bootlegging. <laughs> bootlegging is always going to be bootlegging. No more DVDs. Do people still use <laughs> DVDs? You know? And I think it was like a couple years ago, I still used to go to the swap meet in my neighborhood. And there was a lady there that used to always have the, the, the bootleg uh, DVDs uh, on sale at the, at the swap meet. Recently? You got to ask for them. You got to ask for them. But yeah, she always had them. Recently, <laughs> yes. oh wow, I'm surprised. <laughs> yes, right, and the only reason why is uh, it, that that nobody knocked her out or anything because it was a black woman and you know nobody was trying to knock her hustle. So, you know, I mean, it, it struggle was real in my neighborhood. So, you know, we already knew what the game was. Now, when it was something like Black Panther that came out, everybody went and uh, put money in on that. Uh, it is what it is. I mean, but but you know, the, yeah, the bootleg is still around. <laughs> and it's what happened with, um, with Black Panther. Is is that an apparition? Is is that just a frozen moment in, in time? You know, and can we indeed grow that sort of support and and enthusiasm, and particularly uh, as DP is, is speaking on um, movies that speak specifically to ATR. Uh, traditional African-based religious system. I'm seeing a great deal of new uh, Orisha uh, production. Uh, one of my favorite artists, uh, Wolfhawk Jaguar. Wolfhawk Jaguar. Um, almost every music video he puts out is, is full of Orisha, uh, but it's very Yoruba specific. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're still not seeing a great deal of, of expansion and awareness of other ethnic groups, Igbo, Hausa, Ewe, uh, but, but just to see the Orisha and the African uh, demonstration at all, um, again, is it more of black exploitation in, in its newer form? Or are we indeed going to get to a, a degree of, of diversity um, that's universal? When I look at uh, Ghana and Nigeria and the Nollywood and the Gollywood movie, um, I often look at the content. Is it all political? Is it all cultural? Is it all racial? Is it all horror? But, but you're seeing a great deal of diversity coming from those, those uh, two particular nations. And I think that's primarily um, Neophyte Bokur because they're producing their own stuff. Right. That's. I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, Hollywood is uh, it's big right now, and I'm I'm actually excited about it right now because from what I can see, a lot of us are actually coming out of the uh, quote unquote room closet. You know, uh, uh, we're 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 starting to come out. We're starting to to show that we're tired of other people telling our stories because for the most part, like. Just like the, the entertainment part about it and the, the equity found in it and whatnot, 
and the footprint that it leaves, uh, we're we're starting to see that it, that we need to use this as a base to be able to reconnect to ourselves. Uh, none against the church, however, the only opposition that I've ever seen against knowing ourselves is coming from the church. Uh, for, mo- for the most part, because it's all everybody's still afraid of of the, the, the stories that we have been told, especially in our, our movies, our documentaries, they all have this kind of negative, kind of dark tinge to it that we still can't seem to shake off. Now, mind you, I, I, I'm seeing exactly why that tinge is there, because it's like a, like a, a, a way of being able to protect ourselves from the, the outside influence or the, the outside negativity and survival. But I still um, I still see a lot of fear brought on by the different religions and different cultures that still go with this uh, this hint of racism just in the language used when describing our cultures. I mean, they don't call it black magic for no reason. Right? That's that's sheerly out of uh, uh, a cultural bias, mm-hmm. right? Uh, uh, they don't call it dark magic for, for any reason. They're using these words with a specific uh, a goal in mind, and it's to continue to keep this in the dark, if you will, mm-hmm. despite the, the pun. Yeah, I would agree. And um, Paul Cologne um, sort of agrees, too, in terms of uh, it will be difficult to replicate the success of Black Panther because it's rare for a large studio to put a large amount of money in a story mm-hmm. with Black people and, and then let Black people also direct it and act, work in front of the camera and, and, behind, and behind the scenes. And I agree with that. And I would dare say, um, at the risk of my career, um, just because it has a black name on it, a black studio on it, does not necessarily mean either that the message is going to be true and authentic and healthy, you know, uh, to who we are and and to what we need to see. Uh, We can easily throw out some random names. I'm not going to. But we can easily throw out <laughs> um, some random names of, of, of movies that we just get more of the same stereotype, more of the same limited uh, demonstration of, of what we can be and, and who we are and, and what we are indeed. So we've got to have more control, more not just writers and creators and performers, but, but financiers and people who are willing to support authentic demonstration of, of hoodoo, conjure, root work, and not just in, you know, the, the uh, documentary context. Because, again, I still think there's room enough for entertainment and truth. There's room enough for entertainment and history and archaeology and, and science, if you will. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, 
I know that for the most part, everybody that I've come in contact with, talked to, uh, kind of gravitate towards documentaries. We, we collectively, we, we like documentaries. We like going back and, and researching stuff. But that, that's essentially brought on because of the collective amnesia that we suffer from, trying to find out, like, definitively who we are. Right, we need we 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 crave that knowledge, right? We're thirsting for it. We're, we're, we're thirsty for that that water that is knowing where we actually come from. But it's being weaponized now, against us now. In, in 2020, it's being weaponized against us, mm-hmm. just as was to some degree black exploitation. Now, in, in all fairness, I think. Black exploitation was a little bit more innocent of the time. Again, I think we were just happy to be on film, happy to be given the opportunity to make film. We didn't care if it was Pootie Tang and, and you know, some of the Superfly and some other people that, that came from that, that period. But I think each generation has an op- op- obligation and an opportunity to grow beyond what has happened before, what what has come before. So is it even progress to see a Black Panther movie in 2020? Is that even progress? Or should we absolutely be much further along? Yeah, I think we, um, after, uh, after Eartha Kitt, I believe we should have had a Black Panther. After what they did to Eartha Kitt, um, outside of the movie genre, just CIA, FBI, if you will, what they drags, how they dragged her name through the mud and then kind of dusted her off and then, and then gave her a few awards for her trouble, which I think is disrespectful to her name, period. If people were to understand what I'm talking about, just off of the, the, the sheer... Uh, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to come up with a good name without using <laughs> profanity. But the, what what they did to her, we should definitely be trying to uh, to have made progress back then. So yeah, we, we should be further along outside of a, a Black Panther. It shouldn't have been so long for us to actually see something of that caliber um, involving us. And the continent. Uh, uh, we, we definitely should have seen this a long time ago. It shouldn't have been. It shouldn't have taken so long for us to see it and be so excited about. I'm, I I love Black Panther, right? For me, it's Wakanda forever. I don't care if it's overhyped or whatever. That's that's everybody else's opinion. My opinion is there was much needed medicine that we needed in our our lives to keep pushing us into a collective unit and forward. But it was long overdue. Mm-hmm. So if we get another one, yeah, it's got to be held up to that same standard. And unfortunately, we, we've, uh, we have... I, I don't know. Uh, I just feel like after, like you said, after Eartha Kitt, after Alex Haley and Ruth, after yeah, right. after the career of a Tyler Perry or a Eddie Murphy 
you know, and, and, and I'm calling them out not just because they're comedians or, or actors, but because they have uh, some money and some power and some ability to produce and create and, and recreate and have some level of control over, over their um, product. I, I just felt like there should be 10 Black Panthers at this point. Right. This should be a rivaling uh, the whole Marvel Universe series that they came up with, where every every character has its own series, and then it collectively comes together. It should have been like that. I mean, especially because, I mean, you got Eddie Murphy with Boomerang and um, Harlem Knights, both that, uh, like, dominantly black films. Like, everybody, he was in full control of that of, of that aspect mm-hmm. when it came to creating that movie, let alone coming to America, where we see black excellence, just black everything inside his films. With people being able, with him being able to do that, yeah, we definitely should have had a whole epic of, of Black Panther right now. I mean, the, the comic book series covers it. Uh, uh, Wesley Snipes tried. Uh, just saying. I mean, Michael Jai White again. He's got. He has his own. Um, he has his own company right now, and he's doing movies as well right now. Uh, but I don't hear anything about that in in the news. I don't hear anybody talking about it. I, I, it's rare that I come across somebody who knows that Michael Jai White has his own film producing uh, uh, company right now, mm-hmm. and has already put out at least four movies. Yeah, Just I, had, I had no idea. Don't even, uh, know, don't even know what the movies are. I had no idea. Uh, um, Michael Jawai, uh, Dame Dash has his own film production right now, and his own his own Netflix, his own version of Netflix, and his own version of like Instagram mm-hmm. right now. So yeah, we definitely should have have should take over Black Panther immediately. Immediately, we should take over that right now. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and again, I'm happy to see horror. I mean, horror is one of my more favorite genres in, in terms of <laughs> Yeah. I, I like horror, uh, you know, but um, I would like to see a little bit more diversity. I would like to see a little bit uh, greater degree of, of, of range. Um, black characters, uh, uh, female characters, male uh, characters, transgender uh, characters. There's still a great deal of limitation in terms of what's being made and what's being produced. Even when it's being made by our community, it's still often very limited um, in, in terms mm-hmm. of its range, its reach. Yeah, I think uh, Cloak and Dagger was a great example of a kind of a positive outlook on the culture, on, on, on voodoo itself. I mean, Cloak and Dagger definitely gave it a more positive vibe rather than the, the, the kind of negative that we're accustomed to seeing. But yeah, so if anybody hasn't seen that, I strongly recommend going to see uh, or, or watching that and getting an example of what I'm talking about. Yeah. Listen, I appreciate you. I'm going to move it forward. Um, I appreciate everyone showing up at 12 noon U.S. Central Standard Time in the middle of your day to be a part of my broadcast, my podcast. I look forward to connecting with you again here on Monday. 
at high noon U.S. Standard Time. And I offer you all divine, all blessed peace and love, joy and prosperity to you and yours. All is a blessing. Ashe. Ashe.
Congo Square. The Omus Indians, the Omus Indians prepared this place for us centuries before our arrival. A sacred spot where corn festivals were celebrated. The Omus Indians prepared this place for us. Centuries before our arrival. Congo Square, a sacred spot where corn festivals were celebrated. And as the colonizers came, our hosts, the Omus Indians, they pushed aside our hosts. The colonizers came and pushed aside our hosts and introduced us in chains. And by the late 1700s, we somehow, recognizing the sacredness of Les Places de Congo, we somehow, and the how of our somehow persuasive methodologies is not clear at this moment. The how is not clear. How our persuasive methodologies worked is not clear at this moment. But nevertheless, even as slaves, we crafted and created a space where we could be free to be we. And thusly, thusly we countered the sacrilegiousness of the French, giving great homage to our ancestors as well as giving praise and thanks to our red-blooded brothers and sisters. This is an oral libation toast to Congo Square, to Native Americans, to our ancestors who made a circle out of a square and gave us a way to stay ourselves, save ourselves from the transformatory ugliness of America, which refuses to recognize the spirituality of life which refuses to recognize the spirituality of life and celebrates death with crosses and crosses, double and triple crosses, the middle passage, the first cross, Christianity, the double cross, and capitalism, the ultimate triple coup de gras cross of our captivity. But the terror of crosses notwithstanding, we sang, we beat, we be, we was and is. Hail Congo Square. Congo, Congo Square. Our African gods have not been obliterated. They have merely retreated inside the beat of us. Inside the beat of us, our African gods have not been obliterated. They have merely retreated, retreated inside the beat of us until we are ready to release them into a world that we recreate, a world harrowed by the beat, be, beat, being, beating, being of black heart drums, heart beat, heart beat, heart be at this place, at this place, be heart beat, be, be 
We beating place in new world space, beating being in place in new world, preserving our ancient pace. Our dance is the God walk, our music the God talk. First thing we do, let's get together, circle ourselves into community. No beginning, no end, connected together and singing, ringing, singing in a ring. Second, let's be original, aboriginal. Be what we were before we became what we are. Be bambula dance. Be banza music and sing song words which have no English translation. Third, let us remember. Let us remember never to forget. Even when we can't remember the specifics, we must retain the essentials. Let us remember never to forget. Even when we can't remember the specifics, we must retain the essentials, the bounce, the blood, flow, the feel, the spirit, grow, energy, must retain and pass on the essential us-ness that others want to dissipate, whip out of us. But no matter... No matter how much of us they prohibit, no matter how much of us they prohibit, deep inside us is us. Deep inside us is us. Remains us inside and needs only the beat to set us free. The beat to free us. It is morning. A sun day, a feel, a feel without shade, but dark, dark with the people black of us in various, various, various shades, eclipsing the sun with our elegance. We are centuries later now, and still this sacred ground calls us to remember, to beat, to be. We are centuries later now, and still this sacred ground calls us to remember. To beat, to be, beat, Congo Square, be, Congo Square, beat, be, beat, be.
Congo Square. B. Congo Square. Forever, but you're not African. You just put a Rasta money up with a cruise. I tell us, yeah, it's my thing. Rasta for right. Kanamari, Kanamari, Kanamari. Throw me in the church, throw me in the church, throw me in the church. You never solve the problem. Throw me in the church, throw me in the church, throw me in the church. You never solve the problem. Throw me in the church, throw me in the church, throw me in the church. You never solve the problem. Throw me in the church, throw me in the church. Blow me in the church, you never stop the problem. I see sometimes Jaja worshiping, we think passing the church room every day. Is the worshiping? But what your ass on Africa, me I tell you that it's not how we worship Jaja. But whenever we love each other, do the right thing. Stop for concern, abortion, and yamma yamma things. Just keep on doing the right, you got to see Jaja bless you, flowing like water. So Jaja worshiping, it's a simple living. But sometimes we think that Romain. The church is their mother So Rasta must see my people rise up If we will say we are Christian Let's speak up And love each other Do the right thing Everything gonna be done right My own people I got your Rasta Jin on it You know me man You came out Jam you Chap it all it You know me Koto So I pay no need And you know me Koto no need I'm gonna come out Jam you Mamba Oh no See you be Niji number Dalla Kiss Oh but no Fain no Kung a Soli To me Kobo Kanja Jim out Jam me Koba Jam Mamba You get Jam For me Jam me Rumi in the cage, 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 Rumi in the cage,
Throw me in the church, we never stop me from Throw me in the church, throw me in the church, throw me in the church, we never stop the problem. Throw me in the church, throw me in the church, throw me in the church, we never stop the problem. Throw me in the church, throw me in the church, throw me in the church, we never stop the problem. Throw me in the church, throw me in the church, throw me in the church, we never stop the problem. Lawyer, mommy, make it, papa, man, love you, but you're a star, you know, man. Kanye Penyan was so ahene wa penone dange blono komona kamon pamojo ahe Si chafi soli chumi koto mi pelo nyane no kukuba si sinye imami me Ke wa penone da blono wa so wa yoma kano fino kuma yimu Lomini rasta keno pe wangela yone nureno konelione Tu wiki pon fight ni kwe kwa resin and righteousness and justice So that's why every day we keep on preaching the gospel to a reggae music Because for my people rise up Rise up, let's love each other and do the right thing. And whenever we do the right thing, say Jaja, bless it, keep on flowing like water. Sasu so Rumi in the cheek, a Rumi in the cheek, you never solve the problem. A Rumi in the cheek, a Rumi in the cheek, you never solve the problem. Do you, do you, do you? Rastafari, the best movement for the black people. Rastafari, pure majesty, I tell you. Rumi in the church, Rumi in the church, Rumi in the church, you never solve the problem. Throw me in the church, throw me in the church, throw me in the church, you never solve the problem. Throw me in the church, throw me in the church, throw me in the church, you never solve the problem.